Let us pray. Thy word, O Lord, is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, welcome. Have a seat. Um, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. So, the good news is I'm here and I'm prepared to teach. The bad news is that our projector went kerflui. And, um, and so we had to put in a rather small projector that does not have the lumens that the other one did. Isn't it ironic that the title of today's lecture should be a light to the Gentiles. Perhaps it should have been a people who sat in great darkness. But um, So that's where we are today. So we can do one of two things. Um, I hate for you to have to eat in the darkness. And uh, it makes it very difficult, I know, to take notes. Um, so we can do one of two things. We can either press ahead with today's lecture. I don't necessarily need the slides uh, in order to do the lesson. But I know that it is helpful. And I think for many of you, you like to follow along. Of course, we will post them online. So we can go ahead as we are right here, but for those of you in the back, it may be very difficult. Um, if you don't want to do that, we'll simply, we're getting a new projector. God willing, it'll be here by Saturday, so we'll be ready to go on Sunday. And then we'll just pick up with this lecture next week, and we can do something else entirely different today. So I, I leave it up to you. This is one of those few opportunities where you'll get a chance to actually say something. Uh, so you don't want to miss the opportunity. You want to you press on. Oh, well. There we go. All right. Well then, welcome. And uh, thank you for being uh, indulging me. And I, I apologize. Uh, we'll get a new projector in here and it will be a little bit easier. If anybody falls asleep, however, God is the one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and the one from whom no secrets are hid, so he will see you. We are in Mark or Matthew, excuse me, chapter 4, beginning at verse 12. So if you have your Bibles and you can see them, um, open them up to Matthew chapter 4. We'll begin at verse 12. And we're going to go ahead and read through the end of the chapter. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. When we first started the study of the Gospel of Matthew some months ago, one of the things that I pointed out to you was that the Gospel writers were selective in the choice of the material that they included in their narrative. And we said this really shouldn't surprise us. This is typical 
when it comes to biographies, particularly if the person is very famous and there are multiple biographies that appear. And that's basically what the Gospels are. They are biographies. They tell the story of Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry. And if you have a biography of a very famous person like Abraham Lincoln or Winston Churchill, you can have literally thousands of books that have been written about those individuals. Now, somebody might say, well, how many stories can you possibly have about one individual? But obviously, you can have quite a few. And what authors normally do is they focus on a particular aspect of that person's life. So if it's Abraham Lincoln, they may focus on him as a commander-in-chief during the war between the states. They may focus on him as a politician. They may focus on his years prior to becoming president of the United States. They may focus on just those days following the assassination in 1865. But the point is, is that they're focusing on various aspects of his character or various aspects of his life. And every biographer realizes that there's absolutely no way that they can include everything in their narrative that they would like. That's why we have editors. And the editors come along and they cut out those parts that they think are unnecessary or don't necessarily add to the story. Well, the Gospel writers did precisely the same thing, which is one of the reasons we have four different Gospels, as opposed to just one. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and while they sometimes include the same material and sometimes tell the same stories, for example, all four of the Gospels tell the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 with the five loaves of bread and the two small fish. All of the Gospels, of course, give the account of the resurrection and the crucifixion. So we're not surprised by that. And yet, all four Gospels are different. And one of the reasons is that they each have a particular focus or a particular point that they want to impart to their readers. John makes this point very clear in his Gospel. When he gets to the very end of his Gospel in chapter 20, he said, Jesus did many other things that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is telling us very clearly that he has a principle for selection. He said, Jesus did many other things. I'm not including all of those. I'm just including a select few. Later on in the next chapter, which is the last chapter of the book, he says pretty much the same thing. He said, Jesus did many other signs. He's emphasizing that. He said, in fact, if I were to include them all, the world could not contain the books. So the gospel writers are being selective. And I simply emphasize that because it's something that we need to keep in mind as we approach the fourth chapter of Matthew. When you read through those first opening chapters of Matthew, chapters 1 through 4, you almost get the impression that Jesus began his public ministry in Galilee. Now, we know that he was baptized by John, but immediately after the baptism and after the temptation in the wilderness, the narrative skips to Galilee. Verse 12, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. So if the only narrative that you had available to you was the Gospel of Matthew, you would think that Jesus was baptized by John, tempted in the wilderness, and then immediately withdrew up to Galilee where he began his public ministry. But if you read the other Gospels, in particular the first four chapters of John, it becomes very clear that was not the case. Jesus actually, perhaps for the first year of his ministry, had a very active work in the south. He started off, as I said, by being baptized by John in the Judean wilderness. That's south of Jerusalem. That's the bottommost part of Israel in the first century, Palestine. And that's where Jesus was baptized. And then we're told he was tempted. That took place in the Judean wilderness as well. But then if you read through John's gospel, it becomes clear Jesus spent a significant amount of time in and around Jerusalem. He encountered Nicodemus, for example. We're told that he drove the money changers out of the temple precincts. Perhaps he did that on two occasions, at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. And this took place in Jerusalem. Jesus encountered the Samaritan woman at the well just north of this area. And we're all familiar with those stories, and yet none of them are included in Matthew's narrative. So what is Matthew doing? Well, he is clearly, just as John did, just as Luke and Mark did, he is being selective in the material that he chooses. 
So there were lots of things that took place in Jerusalem, in Judea, in the early parts of Jesus' ministry. But Matthew picks up the narrative when Jesus is traveling from the south up to the north. And so in today's lecture, we're going to take a look at three things in particular. We're going to take a look at the beginning of Jesus' preaching and teaching ministry, and we're going to focus on, first, the location. The location that Matthew gives us in terms of his narrative. Second, we're going to actually look at the message that Jesus proclaimed. And finally, we're going to take a look at the method that Jesus employed in the proclamation of that gospel. So I just want you to understand that it's helpful to read all four of the Gospels to get a comprehensive picture of Jesus' life and ministry. In fact, that's the only reason why we know that Jesus ministered for three years as opposed to one. It's because, at least in John's Gospel, there's a reference to three separate Passovers, three separate years. So that's helpful for us to get a full-orbed picture of the Lord's life and ministry to have all four of the Gospels rather than just one. So let's start with the location where Matthew says Jesus, after he left Jerusalem and Judea, he withdrew to Galilee. And as far as Matthew is concerned, this is where he begins his narrative. Now just to give you a little bit of a geography lesson about Palestine in the ancient world, so you can have an idea of what we're talking about here. Ancient Palestine in the first century was basically divided into three parts. There was the area to the south known as Judea. You can perhaps see it on the map there. It's not great, but right here is Judea. This is the area in and around Jerusalem, and the Judean wilderness is south of that area. Then there was a northern part of Israel, which was known as Galilee. You can see that small lake up there at the top. That's actually the Sea of Galilee. Uh, that's the northernmost section of Israel. And then sandwiched between Galilee to the north and Judea to the south was this area known as Samaria. It's a place where a people closely related to the Jews lived. But they were related to the Jews, but they were not full-blooded Jews. Uh, they were what the Jews in the first century would have regarded as half-breeds. And as much as the Jews despised Gentiles for the most part, you have to understand that in the Old Testament, Israel was called out from the other nations of the earth. They were called out to be a light. They were called out to be separate. Uh, this is one of the reasons why the Amish to this very day regard themselves as being separate. They take quite literally that call in the Old Testament to come out from among them and be separate. And so oftentimes the Jews had very little regard for the Gentiles. But as much as they looked down on the Gentiles as uncircumcised dogs, let me tell you, they absolutely despised the Samaritans because they thought the Samaritans were sellouts. They were part Jew and they were part pagan. And so they absolutely despised the Samaritans. In fact, if a Jew was traveling from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north or vice versa, rather than travel through Samaria, which was obviously the most direct route, they would cross over to the other side of the Jordan River, which runs from the Sea of Galilee, you can see, down to the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea, they would actually travel over to the other side, what was known as the Transjordan Route, to the other side of the Jordan River and travel south and then recross in Jerusalem and go north rather than have any kind of an encounter with the Samaritans. So that was sort of the attitude of the day. Even Jesus did this. We're told when Jesus was making his way toward Jerusalem, when he left Galilee for the very last time, he took this Transjordan route. He crossed to the other side of the Jordan River. He came south. He entered in back at Jericho here, and then he took the route north into Jerusalem. There was one occasion, however, when we know he did not do that. And that is when the gospel tells us he had to go through Samaria. Now, why does he have to go through Samaria? The, the text doesn't tell us why. All we can assume is that he was compelled by the Holy Spirit to go through Samaria, and that's where he encounters the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, that's right. And he shares the gospel and reveals himself to her. But for the most part, Jews would avoid Samaria at all costs. So that is Israel and Palestine in the first century. And we're told in Matthew's narrative that Jesus left Jerusalem and he went north and he really began his ministry in earnest in Galilee. And I say in earnest because this is really where Jesus 
becomes famous. When we read about those huge crowds that followed the Lord, sometimes in excess of 5,000 people, remember that he fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two small fish. Where did this take place? Not in the south, but up there in Galilee. That's where Jesus' fame really spread. It's up there in Galilee. And that may be one of the reasons why Matthew is emphasizing this at the very beginning of his narrative. So what was Galilee like? What was this northern section of Palestine really like? Well, first of all, um, it had been in Jewish hands for centuries. But it was called Galilee of the Gentiles because it was heavily populated with Jews, but it was also heavily populated with Gentiles. Now, that was not necessarily the case to the south, but certainly in Galilee there were large numbers of Gentiles. It had been Jewish hands since the time of the conquest, and it had been settled by the two tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. And that's one of the reasons why Matthew quotes this Old Testament passage from the prophet Isaiah, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death on them a light has dawned. So it was an area that was a settled mixture of Jews and Gentiles. It was a relatively small area of land. A Galilee, even today, is only about 50 miles from north to south and about 25 miles from east to west. So it's a small area. But in Jesus' day, it was extremely prosperous. It had been, as I said, settled by Jews, but also by Gentiles. And there had been an increasing number of Gentiles over the years, especially since the Assyrian conquest. When Assyria came in and conquered the northern kingdom, they deported a great number of people and brought their own people in. That was often the case in the ancient world. When one people conquered another people, they would deport the conquered people to their own land to sort of assimilate them, and then they would bring their own people into that land to take control of it. And so there had been a heavy influx of Gentiles into this area, it was an area that was relatively small, but it was very prosperous, far more prosperous than the area around Jerusalem. It was also far more densely populated than the area around Jerusalem. When we think of the Holy Land, we have a tendency to think that all of the action took place in and around Jerusalem, and that's true. That's certainly in terms of Jesus' life and ministry. His crucifixion, his resurrection, the Last Supper, all of those things took place in and around Jerusalem. But the area that was most populated was this region to the north, this region of Galilee. According to Josephus, who was a Jewish historian in the generation just after Jesus, there were 204 cities in that small region of Galilee. Remember, we're only talking about 50 miles east to west, 25 miles, um, excuse me, 50 miles north to south, 25 miles east to west. And in that small area, he says there were 204 cities each of which had 15,000 inhabitants. Now, we're not talking about 15,000 inhabitants total, 204 cities, each of which had at least 15,000 inhabitants. Now, you do the math. How many people is that? It's in excess of 3 million people is what it is. That is a lot of people. And we might be skeptical of that number if it weren't for the fact that Josephus would have known because he was the military governor of this region, and it was his responsibility to know. So Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus began his ministry in a somewhat unlikely place, up here in the north, in a place that was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, densely populated and affluent. Translate, worldly. Worldly. Furthermore, we're told he not only began his ministry up there in Galilee, but we're told he moved his headquarters, as it were, from Nazareth to Capernaum. Now, we have to ask ourselves, why did Jesus do that? Because earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, we've already been told that what? That he would be called a Nazarene. So why does Jesus move his headquarters once he gets to Galilee from Nazareth, which is in that region, to Capernaum? Well, I think there are perhaps two reasons for this. One is due to an event that happened in Luke chapter 4. So 
If you could keep your finger there in Matthew for just a second, and again, this is one of the reasons why it's helpful to read the Gospels as parallel accounts, because one Gospel will fill in the details of the other. So in Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 14, we read this, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth. That is to say, he came to his hometown, where he had been brought up. And, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now that was obviously a messianic prophecy. It was not uncommon for a Jew to be handed, any Jewish male to be handed the scroll and have the opportunity to read the scripture on the Sabbath. And that's exactly what Jesus did. But we're told he specifically opened to this particular passage, this messianic passage, this message about the coming Savior, the Messiah. And when he had finished, we read this in verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And everybody was expecting an exposition. That was what was required. And he began to say to them, here's his interpretation. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them were cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. This is Jesus' way of saying, look, I came here, but I have been received better among the Gentiles than I have among my own people. And he gives several examples of that here. Naaman the Syrian is a great example of this. He was the leper. And we're told when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Verse 29, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And we say, well, why did Jesus move his headquarters from Nazareth to Capernaum? Well, that might be one reason. <laughs> because the prophet is not without honor except where? In his own hometown and among his own kin, oftentimes you find this to be true. It's so much easier to share the gospel with people who are outside your own family. But when you try to share it amongst your own kin, your own kith and kin, what do you discover? Well, oftentimes you discover that they are reluctant to receive it. This was one of the problems for the Apostle Paul. This is one of the reasons why Paul was so effective among the Gentiles. But he had a rough time among his own people. Why? Because they said, we remember you when. You ever had that experience in your life? People have a hard time believing that a change has really taken place in you. This is one of the reasons I never go back to high school reunions. <laughs> Jeff Miller, well, what's he doing? He's a priest. He's a priest. They'd never believe it, some of them. I, we were laughing about this just last night. My wife and I, we were talking to somebody, and somebody said, did you have a lot of people at your wedding? And Kristen said, are you kidding me? She said, my friends could not believe that I was marrying a priest. She said, people came out of the woodwork just to see if it was absolutely true. We've all had this kind of experience, and Jesus had precisely that experience as well. Who does he think he is? He's just the son of Joseph, the carpenter. And he's telling us that this scripture has been fulfilled in our hearing. 
and that the Gentiles are more receptive to the message of the kingdom than we are, they took great offense at Jesus. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why he moved his headquarters from Nazareth to Capernaum. But I think the other reason is simply because Capernaum was more centrally located. We talked when we did the book of Acts about the fact that the Apostle Paul, when it came to proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth, had a strategy. Paul was certainly willing to share the gospel with anybody that he met, but he was very particular in developing a strategy. He wanted to get the message out to as many people as quickly as possible and as effectively as possible. And we notice in the book of Acts that Paul began, particularly on his second journey and subsequent journeys, to focus almost exclusively on what? The great metropolitan areas, the great cities of the ancient world. Paul didn't go to the little villages. Paul went to places like Ephesus and Corinth and Athens and Rome. Why? Because he knew that those were centers of commerce. Everything came and went in the cities. And if he could establish a Christian presence there in the city, it wouldn't be long before the gospel, like everything else, was coming and going throughout the world. And did the strategy work? Well, you're here today, aren't you? We are a testimony to the fact that the strategy worked. Well, Jesus, I'm sure, had a strategy as well. And we're going to see what that was, a method for getting the gospel out. And I think part of that was the location. Jesus was going to come, and he was going to begin here in Capernaum, a centrally located place, and it was here in Galilee, amongst Jews and Gentiles, not Jews exclusively. Why? Because Matthew wants us to understand that while Jesus came to be the Jewish Messiah, he didn't come to be the Messiah for the Jews only. He came to be the Savior of the world. That is why he came. He came to be the Savior of the world. We said this is one of the unique features of Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel is the most Jewish of all the gospels. Every scholar acknowledges the fact that this was a gospel that was written primarily to a Jewish audience. There are more Old Testament quotes, direct quotes, verbatim from the Old Testament in Matthew's gospel than any of the others. And yet, ironically, even though it's the most Jewish of the Gospels, it is also the one that places the most emphasis on a ministry amongst the Gentiles. This is the only one of the four Gospels that ever uses the word church. Did you know that? Now, Paul uses that word frequently. The Greek word is ekklesia, from which we get ecclesiastical, and it means called out ones. But none of the Gospels use that word except for Matthew's Gospel. So this is the emphasis that he is making here, that Jesus began his ministry where? In an unlikely place, up there in Galilee, in this prosperous, worldly place, surrounded by both Jews and Gentiles, because he came to be a light to enlighten the Gentiles and to be the glory, the glory of his people, Israel. That's a good message for us. Where should we be proclaiming the gospel? Well, of course, we should be proclaiming the gospel wherever we can. But we need to go where the world is really alive, where the world is really moving and shaking. It's oftentimes that we don't want to go into those kinds of places. We would like to sort of withdraw and and be safe, live in a cocoon, in a bubble. But Jesus went into those places into those worldly places where the people were lost, where we're told the people sat in great darkness. Why? Because he came to be the light of the world. And what did he say about us? He said, I am the light of the world. But he also said what to his disciples? You are the light of the world. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not put your light under a what? under a bushel. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And just as Jesus went into that kind of unlikely environment, so you and I need to go into those unlikely environments in order to share the gospel because the light never shines so brightly as in the darkness. As in the darkness. So where are those areas in your realm or your sphere of influence that are darkened where people are sitting without the light In ignorance, where can you go to share the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, that's where Jesus began. He began his ministry 
The location was in Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, what was the message that he proclaimed? What did he proclaim among the Gentiles? Well, take a look again at chapter 4, verses 17 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 23, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. How did Jesus get the message that a light had dawned to the people who were sitting in darkness? Well, the first thing that he did was he began to preach and to teach. Now, you're just going to have to indulge me for a minute while I stop lecturing and start preaching to you a little bit. No pun intended. In my opinion, preaching and teaching is the most important thing that a clergyman can do. Now, some people may think there are other things that we need to do. That is true. But preaching and teaching is when the minister proclaims the word of the Lord. Oftentimes, we're told that the reason there is no revival in the life of the world is that there is a famine in the land for the word of God. Did you know that within the Anglican tradition, when a minister is ordained, he is handed a symbol or symbols of his office. Did you know that? In the Roman Catholic Church, when a priest is ordained by the bishop, he kneels before the bishop, and when he stands up, the bishop hands him a symbol of his office. And what does the priest receive in the Roman Catholic Church? Two things, a paten and a chalice. Now, why is that? Because the bishop is telling him that his primary responsibility as a minister of the Church of God is to celebrate the Mass, to administer the sacraments. Now, what is interesting is that the Anglican ordination service is very similar to the Roman Catholic service, very similar, because we come from a similar stock, a similar tradition. But here's what's interesting. When an Anglican priest is ordained, the bishop lays hands, and then the priest stands up. Once again, the minister is handed symbols or a symbol of his office. And you know what the prayer book requires? Only one thing be handed to the minister. A Bible. Because the primary, not the exclusive responsibility, but the primary responsibility of a clergyman is to preach the Word. It is to teach the Scriptures. It is tragic. I believe this is one of the reasons why many mainline denominations are so weak and so anemic today is because what they get is weak, pusillanimous doctrine from the pulpit. And so the people aren't equipped. They aren't prepared to go out. What's the job of the minister? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Well, if the minister doesn't have any confidence or ability to proclaim the gospel, how in the world can the people be expected to do that? I want you to notice that this was Jesus' chosen vocation. He did other things, as we will see. He's going to heal people of their infirmities. But what I want you to notice is that Jesus, at least while he was on earth, understood that his primary calling was to preach. There's a great example of this. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn to Mark chapter 1. Here again we can see that sometimes looking at the Gospels side by side can be illuminating. So Mark chapter 1. And we'll look at verses 35 and following. Uh, we're told that while Jesus was there in Capernaum, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever had left her, and she began to serve them. I'm at verse 32. And that evening, we're told at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, but he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So here's what happens. Jesus is in Capernaum. He heals some people. The word quickly spreads throughout the countryside that the great miracle worker is there. And before long, there is a crowd gathered at the door. Everybody who's got some sort of illness or sickness or disease wants to be touched by the master. And presumably, Jesus ministered to their needs. 
Now remember, this is the first century. There was no electricity. There were no street lamps in the first century. When it became dark, what did people do? They went home. But when the sun began to rise, what did they do? They were up and they were back. They were back. So that, that's the scene here in Mark chapter 1. Jesus heals all these people. It becomes dark. The people are sent home because it becomes dangerous. But when morning arrives, lo and behold, the crowds are back, knocking at the door. But look at what verse 35 says. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Translate, what are you doing? This is no time to be praying, Jesus. We've got work to do. You need to get back down in there and start doing the work that you didn't finish last night. Because what did they assume Jesus' ministry was? They assumed his was a ministry of healing people of their physical maladies. But look at what Jesus said. Verse 38, and he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Yes. Well, let me say two things about that. It depends. Uh, if you go into most colonial churches, what you will discover is that the most dominant feature in most colonial churches, and this includes most Anglican colonial churches, is the pulpit. If you go to Christ Church Alexandria, for example, in Virginia, the thing that is most prominent is the pulpit. If you go into St. Michael's Church, built in the 1750s, the most prominent feature is by far the pulpit. Now, there is an altar table up there, probably not in its original position, but the most prominent thing is a double-decker reading desk, a reading desk and then the pulpit. Now, of course, when you walk into St. Philip's, it's a little different, but you have to remember we were built in the 1830s, not in the 1750s. Of course, we're older as a congregation, but you know. <laughs> we burned down, and uh, so we rebuilt, and so... But even at St. Philip's, you'll notice that actually, while the pulpit is, I mean, the, the altar is up there facing the east wall, still, when you walk into St. Philip's Church, what is the most prominent feature? What do you see more than anything else? You see the pulpit. It is raised up. It's a high pulpit. Now, in the 1880s, with the advent of the Oxford movement, the high church movement, they began to move away from that. And they began to emphasize the pulpit, I mean the, the altar. And so pulpits were sort of shoved to the side. Sometimes they were small. Sometimes they were the same size as the lectern. And the altar was the prominent thing. But the balance within the Anglican tradition has always been word and sacrament. But you need to understand that the word, when it is proclaimed, is for everybody. The sacrament is not for everybody. Do you realize that? I mean, that's one of the reasons why we say on Sunday, if you're visiting with us today, this is the Lord's table, not St. Philip's table, and all Christians baptized in the name of the Trinity are welcome to receive Holy Communion. Because the church requires baptism for admission to Holy Communion. Why? Because it's the Lord's table and it's for the Lord's people. The pulpit, on the other hand, was for everybody. And in the ancient church, if you were not baptized, you had to go through a whole process of catechumenate, which was three years long, and you could come in for the first part of the liturgy and hear the word preached, but when it came time for the celebration, you had to leave until you were baptized. So that's, that's where this comes from. So. Yeah, well, he was wrong. So at any rate, uh, just kidding. I know we got some Presbyterians out there, and God love them. So... This is the emphasis, preaching and teaching. Now we have to ask ourselves, well then, what was it that Jesus preached? 
And this was a big part of his ministry. What was the message that he had to proclaim? Well, go back now to Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 4. And look at verse 17. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the message that Jesus proclaimed. Repent, that is, change your direction. The Greek word is metanoia, have a change of mind, but a change of heart that obviously affects other aspects of your being, your heart, your mind, your spirit. Repent, why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. That is to say, God's reign has broken into the creation. A new sheriff is in town, namely a new king. A new sovereign has arrived on the scene. You've been waiting, anticipating, hoping, praying for the Messiah, the king, the one who would come and sit on David's throne, great David's greater son. Well, he has arrived, Jesus said, and because he is here, it is now time to change direction and turn and follow him. Now, what I want you to notice is that if you go back one chapter in this same gospel, you will discover John the Baptist down there in the Judean wilderness proclaiming a message. And what was his message? Repent. Why? For the kingdom of God is at hand. Isn't it interesting that Jesus proclaimed precisely the same message that John proclaimed? What that tells us, my friends, is that there is only one gospel. There is only one gospel. Now, we are living in a time in which people want to believe that there are all kinds of little gospels out there. You hear this from time to time, don't you? Tell your truth. As though you have your version of the truth and I have my version of the truth and all versions of the truth are basically equal. Now, that's the gospel according to Oprah Winfrey. But that is not the gospel according to Jesus Christ. The New Testament makes it very clear there is only one gospel. And what is that gospel? That the King of kings, the Lord of lords, has arrived. And His kingdom is being established. And over the course of time, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the conversion of human hearts, the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever. It's not a case, well, that may happen. It is happening. And therefore, people need to repent. Let me tell you something. That gospel that was proclaimed by John, proclaimed by Jesus, proclaimed by the apostles in the first century in that Greco-Roman culture is still the gospel that needs to be proclaimed today. Because people are still sitting in darkness and they need to have the light of the gospel. They still do not have that relationship with God without which it is impossible to see the kingdom of God. So that was the message that Jesus proclaimed. That salvation, the forgiveness of sins had arrived and a person could be included. It didn't matter if they were Jew or Gentile. They could be included within the family of God by grace, received by faith. Isn't that what Paul said in Ephesians? Those of you who've been in the Sunday school class, for you are saved by grace through faith and not by works so that no man may boast. This is a great mystery that has been hidden in ages past, but it has now been revealed to those who are the initiate. That God is doing what? He is transforming the world through the agency of his people. He's getting the Adam Project back on track. That's a glorious message, you see. And it shows us that God is the sovereign Lord of history. So that's the message that Jesus proclaimed. But part of that message also involved, we're told, miracles. Verse 23, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And his fame spread, and they brought to him the sick. Now, why did Jesus perform miracles? If he's already said that his primary goal is to proclaim the gospel, why did he perform miracles? I think it was to authenticate who he was. You know, we are fascinated by the spectacular, the extraordinary. You've heard me say this before. This is one of the reasons why all the big summer blockbuster movies, they never win the Academy Award but they make buco bucks because they're the ones that have all the special effects. I told you years ago, I, I said to my wife when the movie Titanic came out, I said, oh, I want to go see that movie so bad. And she said, I don't want to see that movie. 
And I said, why not? Everybody's going to see that movie. And her response was, we know how it ends. <laughs> and she was right. <laughs> you know how it ends, and it does not end well. But I wanted to see it, not because I didn't know the story, but I wanted to see the special effects. They said, you could feel that ice-cold water. You could hear the, the ship creaking. You could feel yourself sliding along the deck as the ship went down hard by the bow. See, we're, we're fascinated by that sort of thing. But that's one of the reasons why you'll notice that Jesus, once he performed a miracle, oftentimes would say to the people, now don't tell anybody about this, because he knew that they would focus on the miracles, and what he wanted them to focus on was the man and the message. If Jesus healed somebody of their leprosy, or whatever malady it may have been, the reality was something else was going to kill them. That's why I've told you, I've always thought that Lazarus is the most pitiful person in all of history. It's bad enough to die once. Who wants to die twice? Jesus raised him, but he died again. So the miracles were not meant to be an end in and of themselves. They were meant to authenticate the man and his message. And this is one of the reasons why Paul in 2 Corinthians describes miracles and signs and wonders as those things which accompany apostles. That is to say, the miracles were given to the apostles, Peter and Paul and the others, to authenticate them and their ministry so that people would listen to the message. So that was Jesus' message. He proclaims the gospel. The location is Galilee. The message is repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. The means by which he got people's attention and authenticated himself was by means of these miracles, the healing of infirmities and illnesses. Now here's the method. Here's the method by which Jesus proclaims the gospel, gets this message out to this densely populated area. And this is where the rubber really hits the road for us. We discover that God works through people. Verse 18, And while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. I want you to understand, while God can save the world by any means, the means that he has appointed, the means that he has chosen, is his people. Which is to say, if the world is going to be saved, it's going to be saved how? By us. Not in the sense that you and I do the work of redemption, but in the sense that we proclaim that work of redemption so that people can appropriate it to their own lives by faith. Which means if we're not doing our job, what's going to happen to the world? It's going to stay in darkness, that's exactly right. So Jesus came here to this area, he had a message to proclaim, it was a good message. It was a message that the people needed to hear, but the means by which that message was going to be proclaimed was through people. And right here we see him calling those disciples. And if you're a Christian today, what that means is that you have been called as well. And what I want to do in the time that we have remaining is I want us to take a look at the nature of the call. What does it mean when Jesus says that we are to be followers of him? Well, the first thing I want you to notice is that that call, follow me, appears 13 times in the four Gospels. That's generally how Jesus called people unto himself. He simply went to them and he said, follow me. Now to follow Jesus involves, I want to suggest to you, five things today. The first thing is that it involves obedience. When Jesus said, to these four men here in Matthew's gospel, follow me, I want you to understand it was not an invitation. Now when we think of the gospel, we think of it in terms of an invitation, don't we? But you don't have to be an expert in grammar to realize that the words follow me are not an invitation, they are a what? Command. They are a command. That is exactly right. Why can Jesus command people to follow him? Why? Matthew's already told us, because he's the 
The king. The reason people need to repent is why? The kingdom has arrived. He is the king, and so kings do not invite you to come. Kings, they command you to come. Now that is not to say that the gospel doesn't have an element of the invitation in it. Of course it does. And we sometimes say to people, particularly when we share the gospel, come and follow Jesus. But when Jesus issues the call, it is not an invitation. It is a command to follow him. This is borne out elsewhere. And one of the most powerful stories, I think, in the entire New Testament. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn to Acts for just a minute. Those of you who were with me in the Acts study took us two years to get through Acts. You may recall this story. On the other hand, it took us so long you may not even remember when it took place. But (laughs) Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that is, his companions at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. I pointed out to you when we looked at this section of the book of Acts that Athens, of all the places that Paul visited, was the place that I think he was probably most excited about seeing because it was the intellectual center of the ancient world. It was in the late afternoon of its glory at the time that Paul went there. It had got involved in a very costly war with the Spartans, and it was on the decline, but it was still a remarkable place. And Paul, having that very fine classical education, having been a Roman citizen, and having been raised as a Pharisee as well, Paul would have loved this kind of intellectual environment. And we're told that he went there, and he had the opportunity to address the debating society. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that you are in every way very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Skip ahead to verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now what? He commands all people everywhere to repent. He doesn't invite people to repent. He commands them to repent. The time of ignorance is past. The people who sat in darkness, on them the light has dawned. And as a consequence, they are commanded to follow. If you're a Christian today, Jesus Christ has to be the Savior of your life, but he also has to be the Lord of your life. And that involves absolute obedience. painful, costly as it may be, it involves absolute obedience. Second thing it involves is repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does the word repent mean? It means to turn. How much? Not the all the way around, that's no good. It's not a 360, it's a what? It's a 180, that's right. The idea here is that you're traveling down a path, and it's a path that leads to destruction. To repent means you stop, and you turn around, and you go back. If you're traveling down a road at night, and it's pouring buckets, and it's a country road, and you see a sign that says, bridge out, what is that? That is a warning to do what? Repent. (laughs) Turn around. Don't keep going. It does no good if you do a 360 and keep going in that direction, folks. You're going off. You're going to perish. So the call to repent was what? A call to stop whatever you were doing and turn around and come back. If you're going to be a Christian, that's what it means. It means to stop whatever you are doing and turn around and come back. And we said that repentance does not simply mean that you are sorry for your sins. It means what? Being sorry enough to quit. That's what real repentance is. 
So when Jesus says to his disciples that he'd come to proclaim a gospel, part of that gospel involved obedience. He says, come, follow me. I want you to notice that when he said that, immediately we're told, two of these men, James and John, left their nets and what? Their father in the boat. Now that's significant. When they left their nets, what did their nets symbolize? Their livelihood. They were fishermen, weren't they? So when Jesus said, come follow me, it was a radical. It meant that if necessary, leave behind your old life. And when they left their father, well, this is a hard thing for us to even grasp, they left their father in the boat. What was Jesus basically saying? That there are those times when in order to follow him, we have to even forsake family. Now, we have been raised to believe that family is the most important thing in the world. But what Jesus is saying is, no, I am the most important thing. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and I must be first, and everyone else must come in a descending order, even if that means that you must leave behind your family, your kith and your kin, in order to follow me. Do you understand how radical this call is? It is not easy. And yet it is the path that leads to eternal life. Are we willing to put Jesus Christ first, even before our family? Oh, that's a hard call, and yet it's not an invitation, it's a command to do so. Now, sometimes we don't have to do that. Sometimes our family's right there with us, but sometimes it is. Even Jesus was rejected by his own people. He came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. Third thing that following Jesus involves is submission submission. The Greek, the Latin word, excuse me, for submission is actually a, a compound of two words, sub and mito. Sub means under, mito means authority, basically to put under one's authority. It means that if you're going to be a Christian, you are willing to live under the authority of Jesus Christ. That you are willing to be obedient to his word. That you are willing to follow his destruction, his instructions. You know, we live in a time in which we have a hard time with obedience, don't we? And, and you can think about that by the way we talk about obedience today. What do we speak of? Oftentimes you'll hear people speak of blind obedience. Did you ever hear that? Or mindless obedience. Sometimes you see bumper stickers that say, question authority. They don't say question, you know, illegitimate authority or corrupt authority. They simply say what? question authority. So we have this idea that obedience is somehow a bad thing. All that is is an excuse to live our life our own way. And so if you're going to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, you submit. And this is the way Jesus issued the call. He said, come unto me all you that travail and are heavy laden and I will refresh you. Take my yoke upon you. It's the same word here, submit, take my yoke. What was a yoke? Well, it's an instrument that takes two animals and puts them together for work. They are under the yoke. They are under the authority. They are under the control of what the master. That's what Jesus wants for our lives. He wants us to stop what we are doing, to heed his call and follow hard after him, forsaking everything else if necessary, and to submit to his authority. Here's the fourth element involved in the call. Trust. You trust that when Christ says, come and follow me, and you will find refreshment for your soul, that it's true. You trust that when he says, to follow me is to find true life, that to gain the world is to lose your own soul, but to lose your own life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel is to find everything that you desire. What that means is that you trust him. Sometimes it doesn't look that way, does it? Sometimes it looks to follow Jesus means you're giving up everything that is familiar and comfortable. But to be a follower means that you trust that he will take care of you. And here's the fifth element. I'm skimming through these, but here's the fifth thing. To be a follower of Jesus Christ involves perseverance. This is not something that we do for a season. It is not something that we do for a few months. 
You know, sometimes they will let you take things home from a store, try it out in your house, see if it works. Sometimes they'll let you test drive a car to see if it works for you. We like to test drive everything in our culture, don't we? From cars to marriages. See how it works. Ride it around the block, kick the tires a few times. If it doesn't work well, then we'll try something new. The Christian life is not a call for a time. It is a call for eternity. The fifth point of the Reformed theology is the perseverance of the saints. The saints persevere to the end. That's what Jesus said. Those who persevere to the end will be saved. Which tells us that Jesus is the door and the way. He is the door by which we enter into this life but he is also, he said, the way. That is to say, it's not just a door that you enter through and you stand on the other side of the threshold. It is a life that you enter into. And it is a lifelong journey, which tells us also that this is what? This life is costly. This life is costly. And are we surprised? For it costs Jesus everything. It cost the disciples, the apostles, everything. And yet, my friends, it is the only way to find what your hearts really desire. Anything less than this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Do you know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was? Many of you do. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor during World War II. He was a theologian as well. He lived for a time in America, uh, taught at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, and then went back to Germany as the Nazis came to power. And he was one of the few who actually stood up against Hitler and the Nazi party. And as a consequence of that, he was imprisoned. Now, Hitler had many enemies, and there were lots of people out there um, conspiring to bring him down, even people within his own government, sometimes high-ranking military officials like Erwin Rommel. But do you know who the last person was executed by order of Adolf Hitler at the end of the Second World War? The last one that Hitler could not let alive was this German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And I want to read you an excerpt. He said, cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the accountant has been paid in advance. And because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would be grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession of sin. It's absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. Costly grace is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it is the only thing that gives man true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and it is grace because it justifies the sinner. 
Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is life with the incarnate God. And Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God has arrived. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for sending Jesus Christ into this world to pay the price for our sin, but to purchase us back from the power of sin, from the power of death, and from the power of Satan, that we might belong no more to the world, but belong to you. Now grant us the strength to live like that as redeemed people. Grant us the grace, the courage, the strength, whatever it takes for us to follow hard after you, and to fear nothing but the loss of you, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you.